turn with me in your Bibles if you have them with you. We're beginning a new book this morning. We are entering into the book of Acts, chapter 1. We'll start this morning, and I imagine we'll be here for a number of years. You laugh because you know me so well. Um, introducing a book is always a special thing. How, how, do we, how do we preach this word in such a way as to really capture your heart and mind with the spirit, with the truth of God's scripture, that you fully understand exactly what it is he's trying to say to you through this passage? It's, it's always a bit of a struggle in terms of how to actually jump in, how to dive in with, with both feet. But I think that uh, the choice this morning, all I am for you, um, that was a beautiful selection. Um, and I think that as we walk through the book of Acts, that's what we see, Christ walking with his people, calling them into a deeper level of trust, into a deeper level of faith, and using them to proclaim the good news of his love for the world and building the kingdom through them. And so uh, I'd just like to reread for you the first three verses, and then we'll pray. We'll ask God's Spirit to illuminate the text before us this morning, and then we'll jump in and we'll get to work. This morning, we're just going to look at the first three verses. Tyler Walkton was joking with me earlier in the week. He says, we're probably just going to look at the Thea and Theophilus this week, aren't we? No, we're going to cover the first three verses. Don't worry, don't worry. Here we go. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of of God. Let's, let's go to the Lord who sits on that throne now and ask his help. We know you walk among us. We know you are here. You are sitting right beside us. You are delighting in our worship. And you are worthy. Everything we sing to you, every praise we give to you, you deserve it and so much more. We just want to say thank you this morning for calling us together as a family, as a church. We want to say thank you for starting this book, writing this story, obviously through the hand of Luke under the inspiration of the Spirit, but a story that doesn't actually end in chapter 28, a story in which we find ourselves somewhere after chapter 28, a story that you are still writing for us. Father, I just ask you, as we work our way through this text, this morning and all of the Sundays to come, would you grow your people into a deeper level of faith with you, walking with you, obeying you, trusting you for the outcome? And this morning, Lord, as we look at these first three verses, as we introduce this text, Lord, we pray that you would just show us, beginning to show us, what it means to be a church, and to be a part of your family. God, we ask you to do this in the precious and wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Would you come with me to church? Would you care to join me at church on Sunday morning? 
These are undoubtedly invitations that you've probably extended either to a family member or a coworker at some point in time. And as you've extended the invitation, would you care to join me at church or would you like to go to church or you've got to come check out my church on Sunday morning? As you've extended those invitations, you may have been met with a variety of responses. No thanks. I don't want to go. I'm not spiritual. I'm not religious. I've already got a church. Uh, Any number of different responses. The world that does not attend church, the world that does not believe in Christ, regards this thing, this church, this institution, as an object of mistrust, not fully understanding what the point of it is, not fully sure what it is we're doing here on a Sunday morning. They can't quite put their finger on it, but by and large, when unbelievers, when those who do not trust in the name of Christ regard this gathering, what happens here week after week, undoubtedly they regard it with a degree of distrust. Perhaps those people have some impure motives. Perhaps they're all drinking some sort of drugged up Kool-Aid, they just want my money. All of these sorts of thoughts are undoubtedly going through their heads anytime you've tried to talk to them about going to church with you. So the church in the present day and age, to those who are not a part of it, can be and has been an object of great mistrust. But it is also, I think, fair to say, something of an object of misunderstanding as well. When you hear the word church, Unfortunately, it can conjure up all of these ideas of what's going on. And those ideas are largely formed and fashioned based upon what you see on the television, what comes out of Hollywood, a bunch of holy rollers maybe, or some crazy people doing odd things like passing snakes up and down the aisle, or people rolling around having what appear to be schizophrenic-type seizures Uh, We're not entirely sure, but then we see the more tame versions where they're all singing old songs from the 1950s that are slightly out of tune to an old-fashioned organ, and it doesn't sound like any of the type of music that we listen to on the radio today. And so they're trying to reconcile their, their head, they're trying to wrap their mind around this idea, reconcile this idea of church based upon these other ideas that are being presented to them by the culture at large. And so they are largely confused, they don't understand it, they don't get it. After all, who wouldn't want to sleep in on a Sunday morning or grab a couple of holes of golf or do their laundry or catch up on their grocery shopping? Who really wants to set aside an entire two, three hours, and if Pastor Josh is preaching even longer, to go to church and to hear this guy ramble on? Uh, who really wants to commit time to that? And so there's something a little bit off about those people. There's something a little bit off about them. They go. They want to go. They want to be there. So... Distrust, confusion, misgivings, even for those of us who have attended church our whole lives. We see all the things that can go on in a church. We've probably, some of us have been hurt by things that have gone on inside of a church. We're told it's a community of love. We're told that it's a people who worship Christ, and as a result, they act like Jesus, only to encounter at some point in time As you're pulling into the parking lot, fellow brother Joe guns it to beat you into that coveted parking space. (laughs) Because there are exactly 37 spaces here at First Baptist Church parking lot. And if you look around the room, you know there's a lot more vehicles than that that drove into church this morning. And so we've been hurt in, you know, the minor as well as the major ways. Having a secret that we shared in confidence, blabbed all across the prayer chain. 
having people go to care groups and saying, oh, I heard so-and-so, and then they engage in gossip, and then they baptize it under the banner of, we're going to pray for that person. When we use this word church, unfortunately, our idea of church often is defined by what the world thinks, by what culture says, or by our own experiences. And that's all wrong. When we think of church and when we look at what church is about and what it's doing, and as we walk through the book of Acts, the word of God should define for us what church is. Not our experiences, not the culture or the world at large. And so what I want to suggest to you this morning as we begin the book of Acts is that the church of which this book is about, the starting of this movement, the church at its inception was and continues to this very moment to be a movement built around a supernaturally born conviction that Jesus died as our only Savior and that he has risen from the dead and that he continues to reign from on high. Let me say that to you again. The church is not a building. It's a movement. It's a gathering of people built around this idea that those individuals who make up the church have a supernaturally born conviction. Note every single one of those words. A supernaturally born conviction that Jesus died as the only Savior of the world, that he has conquered death, he has risen from the grave, and that he is now, even in this moment, reigning from on high. When we come to the book of Acts, as we begin these first three verses, that's what we understand to be the starting point of any definition that we would have regarding church or what it means to walk with Jesus. Look with me. Verse 1, Luke begins. Luke is obviously the author of the book of Acts, and he says, in the first book, O Theophilus. Now, although I could, I'm not going to actually get into a detailed word study of the name Theophilus. But what we need to take away from this first verse is that this is actually a sequel. About two years ago, they were making a, a movie in Hollywood about King George III, uh, and they were going to call it King George III, but they were worried because they, they thought if they put King George III as the title of the movie, people would be confused and think that there were two prequels that they needed to go see first before they saw this movie, and then it would drive down ticket sales. And so they just said Mad King George. That was the name of the movie that was produced in Hollywood a number of years ago. What's interesting is when we come to the book of Acts, Right off the bat, as Luke begins his treatise on this movement, this movement of Christianity in the first century, he doesn't make any bones about it. What's about to happen is a continuation of something that has already happened. When you start into the book of Acts, right off the bat, Luke is saying, this is part two. This is part two. There was a prequel. There was an original story that was told. He makes this statement, in the first book, O Theophilus. So to understand exactly what Luke is trying to do in the second book, you need to know exactly what he's trying to do in the first book. And of course, we know that the book of Acts is a continuation of the original gospel that Luke penned 
the gospel according to Luke. And I don't want you to flip there, but I want you to listen to this. He's writing to Theophilus. The gospel of Luke is also written to a man named Theophilus. And Luke begins his gospel in this way, chapter 1, verse 1, in as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished. Notice the past tense there. The things that have absolutely been done. In as much as many have compiled a narrative of those things, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word and have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, O Theophilus, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you in order that you may have certainty regarding the things that you have been taught. Now, right off the bat there, that word ought to grab your attention. This guy, Theophilus, we don't really know a lot about him. Luke addresses him as most excellent Theophilus. It could be assumed, it could be guessed or hypothesized that perhaps this guy, Theophilus, was a wealthy patron of Luke, that perhaps he may have paid for Christian ministry. Maybe he was subsidizing Luke's travels abroad in order to compile these gospel accounts. That's all well and good, but when Luke actually puts it together, regardless of whoever this guy is, regardless of whatever his social standing is or whatever kind of financial backing he may or may not be giving to the church, Luke's goal, while acknowledging him as perhaps a patron, saying, oh, most excellent Theophilus, his goal in writing the Gospel of Luke is to say, the reason I'm writing this is in order that you would have certainty you would know concretely. This, this Greek word that was translated certainty, it has this idea to do with stability, security. It has to do with this idea of not being movable, not being shakable. It's a word that points to foundations. And what Luke is saying to Theophilus is the reason I'm putting this account together for you is that you would have certainty. That is, in your understanding of the gospel, in your knowledge of Jesus Christ, you would be able to say, this is a fact, this is what happened. His goal for that is that Theophilus would not be shaken or moved by any rumors or any other suggestions to the contrary, which were prevalent in the first century, almost as prevalent then as they are today, that Jesus Christ isn't who he really said he was, that he didn't really accomplish the things that he did, in fact, accomplish, and that if we dug far enough, deep enough into the soil, somewhere, somehow, we would still find a corpse belonging to this man, Jesus, and that he wasn't truly the Son of God. Luke's purpose in writing all of that is to say, no, dig as long and as hard as you want. Go all the way to the bedrock. Go all the way to the center of the earth. Do whatever you want. Excavate whatever you want. You will never find a body because there is no body because Jesus is reigning in heaven. That's how the first book closes. One thing you can have certainty about is that God has sent his son. And that man came and he walked and he lived among us. And he worked miracles, and he ruled as a king, although he did not use force. He preached a truth, a gospel of reconciliation. And to prove that he had power over everything, including life and death, he voluntarily went to the cross in your place, dying the death that you deserved in order that you could be forgiven. And to prove that he had the power to break the bonds of death. On the third day, he came out of the grave, having accomplished everything that God intended for him to accomplish. 
Luke starts off his second account saying, this is number two. Look what he says here. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Now, on one hand, this reference to Theophilus means, and this reference to a former volume, a former gospel, means that the purposes, just as the recipient of the first gospel account, are to be understood as inherent in the second gospel account. So he's writing to the same guy. He writes to Theophilus in the Gospel of Luke. He writes to Theophilus in the book of Acts. So the same guy is receiving both books, which means that the purpose which Luke had in constructing the Gospel of Luke is a purpose which can be assumed in the narrative of the church in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. So in the way that he's writing the Gospel of Luke so that Theophilus would have certainty regarding the facts of what Jesus accomplished, past tense, Luke 1.1, He now writes his second book so that Theophilus, and by extension you and me as well, would have certainty regarding the things which Jesus continues to do. Look at what he says here. In the first volume, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach. The implication being that Jesus is not done. He goes on, he says, until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Uh, Until the day God went up into heaven. Until the day Jesus ascended back to the throne. He says, in the first book, I dealt with everything that Jesus began. Now, in the first book, he says, here is what Jesus accomplished. And the Gospel of Luke, it's all about salvation. It is all about atoning on the cross for our sins. He did it. It's done. Now, Theophilus, as we transition to the sequel, to book number two, whereas there is a unique work which Jesus and only Jesus could have accomplished in the first book, there is now a work which is taking place. And guess what? Jesus is still doing that work as well. Salvation has been worked for us. And salvation is being worked in such a way as to be brought to us. That's what Luke is saying to Theophilus here in the first two verses. He makes this statement, In the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit. In other words, what he's saying is in this second book, I'm going to tell you now about everything that Jesus is continuing to do. So if you read the book of Acts from chapter 1 all the way to the end of chapter 28, what do you discover? A lot of interesting things are happening. The Spirit moves. People get healed. People get brought back to life in a couple of occasions. There are people speaking in tongues. There are supernatural manifestations of what can only be described as miracles and the absolute divine intervention into the course of human history. And we would be tempted to look at all of those things and to say, you know what, that's what the book is about. It's about the miraculous working of God, the supernatural manifestation of the divine through these powerful miracles and these powerful displays of just omnipotent control over human history. But that is actually not what the book is about. Jesus himself says what the book is about. In verse 3, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking to them about the kingdom of God. That's what he talked to them about. God is in control. God is reigning in heaven. That's what you need to know. This is what he says to them just before he ascends into heaven. 
So that knowledge that God is in control, that he is sovereign, that knowledge is to undergird, underplay everything that they're about to engage in. Well, what are they about to engage in? If you go back, verse 2, until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit. What command are we talking about here? In my Bible, maybe it's a couple of pages in your Bible, but in my Bible, it's, it's just one page back. If you flip back to the Gospel of John, chapter 20, I want you to listen to this. This is the upper room. Jesus has been crucified, resurrected. He's now meeting with his disciples after his resurrection and talking to them. And in Acts chapter 20, Jesus says in verse 21, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. He breathed on them, and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. John talks about the fact that Jesus says to his apostles, to his disciples whom he has chosen, that in the exact same way God sent Jesus to this earth to bear witness, Jesus is sending his church out into the world to continue to bear witness. And we're going to see this here in just a few weeks' time. You can take it even within the book of Acts itself. Chapter 1, jump on down to verse 6. When they had come together, they, said, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And his response is, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Notice that. You will be my witnesses. You will testify about me. You will testify about the kingdom. You will testify about the fact that Jesus has conquered sin and death death, you will be his witnesses, and he says, in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost ends of the earth. And when you read the book of Acts, that's exactly what you find. Yes, there are accounts of God supernaturally involving himself in their testimony, performing miracles, accomplishing truly amazing things, but the book isn't about the miracles. The book is about the testimony. And it's really interesting if you read it from that perspective. What you see is a church, a group of people gathered around this supernaturally born conviction that Jesus is the only Savior of the world, that he's the only hope that we have, and that he has made good on all of the promises of God. He has conquered the grave. He is now reigning in heaven, and we're called to go tell people about that. And when you read, you come to Acts chapter 2. Peter stands up. He preaches at Pentecost. As a skilled, I, I like to think of myself as a skilled oratician, a skilled rhetorician, it is kind of a, you know, and I say this with love, but it's kind of a, a, a sort of a hodgepodge collection of ideas that he strings together. You know, we would say you need an introduction here, and you need to have a little bit of a scripture exposition, then you need to flesh it out with some illustrations, you need to help them to understand, and then at the end, you need to gently invite them to give their lives over to Christ. And what you see is Peter standing up saying, whoa, whoa, we're not drunk. Any sermon that starts off with we're not drunk, <laughs> you know... Something interesting is about to get said, okay? But if you walk all the way through the book of Acts, you find multiple accounts of this 
where imperfect situations arise, imperfect circumstances come together, and what you see is that God is walking with his people. Jesus is continuing to walk with his people, and it's not that they're looking for that right moment where everything is perfect and they can stand up in peace and tranquility and preach the gospel. It's in the melee and the chaos of life when things are hitting you from every direction. And rather than saying, I'm going to wait until the moment is right, Jesus is walking with his people to help them proclaim the truth, to witness to salvation regardless of the circumstances. And whatever they're lacking, he will supply, such that their testimony about him, as flawed and as imperfect as it is, is not flawed and imperfect to the people who are hearing it. But they are still growing in their ability to handle the word and to preach the word. I'll give you a couple of examples of this. And don't flip there, but just listen. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and a couple of the other apostles are preaching outside the temple. And the Pharisees come. They say, whoa, whoa, why are you preaching this Jesus guy whom we killed a couple of weeks ago? You're trying to make us look bad. You should stop it or bad things might happen to you. But we didn't kill him. You can't bring his blood on our head. But don't keep preaching his name or else. And of course, Peter's response to that in Acts chapter 4, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. Again, an interesting response. It's good, but it's not as clear-cut as we'd like it. Yeah, I don't know. Should we listen to you or should we listen to God? Uh, We're going to keep preaching. You guys, I don't know, whatever you think, okay? And then away Peter goes. But then we find over in chapter 5, one chapter later, they keep preaching. The same group of people come back to them. The same religious establishment says, wait a second, we already told you once, stop preaching. And this time, Peter makes the statement in Acts chapter 5, we must obey God rather than men. So now there's no ambiguity. In the first encounter, when he meets these guys, they're like, stop preaching Jesus. And Peter's like, well, you guys kind of, we're going to just keep preaching and and you guys figure it out, whatever you think, and we're going to keep preaching. Later on, they come, they say, stop preaching. And now Peter's not making any bones about it. His understanding of how he is to meet the inevitable opposition of the Pharisees is growing and maturing. And you see evidence of this and traces of this as you watch his interaction with them through the various sermons that he preaches. It starts off with uncertainty and it moves to conviction and it, it arrives at a will willingness to even die for the sake of the gospel. And you don't see this just with the Apostle Peter. You see it with another person who wasn't even there in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 9, God starts with Paul where he's slowly but surely taking Peter. Peter understands he's moving to a moment in time in which he's going to show his love for the sake of Christ's name by dying for it. Paul, hey, how you doing? You're going to die for the gospel. No extended time of, hey, let's get to know each other. Acts chapter 9, you're familiar with the account, the apostle Paul on the road to Damascus to go persecute and kill Christians because he thinks he's glorifying God by hurting people. Jesus meets him on the road. Wonderful statement, which we'll unpack in three, four years from now. He says, Saul, Saul, Why are you persecuting me? Which is another clue to understanding the book. Jesus is so close with his church, so close with you individually. 
that whatever happens to you is not just you. Christ is with you. So he says to Saul, you're hurting me when you persecute Christians. And of course, he says, who are you? He says, I am the Lord Jesus. Ends up in Damascus. This guy, Annas, is called to go to him and minister to him. God says, go and uh, you're going to see this guy, Saul, and you're going you're gonna to take care of him and help him out. And Saul, he's like, no way. I'm not going. That guy persecutes Christians. And God's statement to Annas is, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to take my name before the Gentiles. Awesome. God wants me to serve him. Next verse. For, which means that what he's about to say connects to what he just said. Chosen instrument. We love to hear the sound of that. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. The introduction for Saul or the Apostle Paul to this movement of Christianity. You want to understand what it means to be a part of this movement. Here it is. It's about loving the name of Christ so much that over time, you will have everything stripped away from you so that you can proclaim that name. And for every painful thing that is taken away, for everything that you lose, for every hardship that you endure, you will still make those same decisions because Christ is working in you in a powerful way to love and cherish the name of Jesus such that you would never make a choice to the contrary. You want Christ And as painful as it is, you let go of all the rest. And this is what we see in the life of the Apostle Paul as he continues to work. I mean, there's an interjection later on in the book in Acts chapter 18. Uh, You know Paul's had some tough times. He's endured some beatings and some stonings and some shipwrecks and some stabbings and some some floggings. And uh, so he's told to go to Corinth to preach the gospel. And we don't really have a response. Jesus says, go. And he says, don't be afraid. Go on preaching and speaking and do not be silent for I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you in this city. (laughs) For once, we've got a promise of safety. Obviously, not there all the time. And he says, no one will harm you to attack you. No one will attack you to harm you in this city for I have many in this city who are my people. And of course, the book progresses. He says to him again in Acts chapter 23, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify to the facts about me in Rome. And the book concludes now with the apostle Paul in Rome in prison under house arrest. With Jews coming to him to hear this gospel message. And contrary to what every young preacher, including me, has ever thought upon that moment of being called and sensing that direction from God to go into vocational ministry, where you're just going to preach and the masses are going to flock in and the room won't be able to hold everybody, what we actually find in the story of the church, in the story of the movement of these people who have this supernaturally born conviction about Jesus Christ. The way that the story comes to a pause 
before your story begins. As the Apostle Paul is in prison and the people he's trying to reach with the gospel have not only as their intention to kill him, but they make fun of this gospel message for which he is about to die. The story of the book of Acts from start to finish is a story about the people of God growing in their confidence in Christ, growing in their skill and their ability to preach the word despite the circumstances, and ultimately coming to a place where they treasure the name of Jesus so much and are so desperate to see the whole world hear this message that there is no sacrifice that they are not prepared to make for the sake of that gospel. This is what Jesus is doing today. Sometimes it comes with the supernatural and the miraculous. Most of the time, it does not. But what Luke says to Theophilus in chapter 1, verse 1, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach, which means that this book, which I've just briefly recounted for you, is what Jesus is continuing to do and to teach today. How do we do do that? See, it's easy for me to sketch it in broad terms, but now how does that work for you in your normal 9 to 5 routine? He makes a couple of statements, which I'll have to unpack more next week. In verse 2, until a day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit. That's not a small detail. The empowering presence of the Spirit, that confidence to stand on the truth of God's Word, you need the Holy Spirit inside of you to fully live out the calling that Christ places upon all of us through this book. That is not a small detail. Here's the other thing. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, verse 3, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. You need the Holy Spirit to live out this calling in your life and through the Holy Spirit, which we'll look at more in depth next week. Through the Holy Spirit, you will need a supernaturally born conviction that Jesus is alive and reigning from the throne of heaven, that he is in perfect control. And despite the chaos of the world, as we experience it, Jesus is unfazed by the insanity that unfolds all around us. And when we are not sure what the next step is, he knows exactly where he's taking us. Church, This is what Jesus is doing today. This is what he is working in our lives. This is what he is working in your life. You know, people criticize the church. Can this creaking, aging organization, can this creaking, sort of feeble institution survive another century? Everywhere we turn and everywhere we look, we see churches that are closing their doors. We see churches that are abandoning, standing on the inerrant word of Christ, and the critics multiply. And we find even critics here within our own halls, within our own doorways. We're convinced 
that Jesus is sooner or later going to let go of this thing. But he's not. He's just beginning. In 1963, President Kennedy was assassinated. It was tragic. If you were to read any of the political commentary during his presidency, you would be not entirely impressed with him as a president. But his assassination, the tragedy that unfolded, turned him into something of an icon amongst that generation of Americans. It was said in the aftermath of his assassination that the age of Camelot had come to an end. They were likening President Kennedy to the mythical and legendary King Arthur. The comparison was that Kennedy's reign as president had unleashed uh, a period of peace and tranquility, and now that he was dead, that period of peace and tranquility, such as Camelot, was also dead. As they laid President Kennedy to rest, they grieved his passing such that they said, we must erect a monument in order that we will never forget the beautiful sunlit years that we enjoyed under his leadership. They established a memorial for him in Arlington National Cemetery. And in 1963, they decided that they would put on the top of that, on the top of that tombstone, what is referred to as the eternal flame. Meaning that the ideals for which Kennedy stood for would be symbolized by this flame which would burn forever and never go out. One year later, a group of Catholic schoolgirls took a field trip to Kennedy's tombstone, and they decided they would anoint it with holy water. <laughs> and it went out with a little bit of holy water. Well, it's interesting, if you actually research it, this eternal flame, which is never supposed to go out, has actually gone out five times in the last 50 years. One time, it went out because they forgot to order propane. Another time it went out because they were doing construction and they ruptured the gas line. On multiple occasions, they've had to intentionally put it out because they were doing construction. What's fascinating is just this most recent time in 2014 when they put out President Kennedy's eternal flame representing Camelot and all the ideals that he stood for. They relit it. And do you know who it was that was tasked with the sacred responsibility of relighting President Kennedy's eternally enduring flame? Was it the president of the United States? No, no. At that time, the sitting president, Barack Obama, couldn't be troubled. Was it the vice president? No, it was not the vice president either. Well, perhaps it was the secretary of state, the third highest ranking member of the cabinet. No, no. Secretary of defense? No, he didn't qualify either. Was it the assistant secretary of defense? No, he was too busy to make it down for that ceremony. It was the third assistant secretary of defense who was given the meaningless and unenjoyable task of showing up for this honor guard funeral service and relighting the flame of Kennedy, the eternally enduring flame that is supposed to stand for all of the ideals of Camelot. Isn't that silly? <laughs> A lot of people look at Jesus and they say he's just an old dead guy from another century. He's a good teacher. He stood for a lot of good things. And they look at the church. They look at you, and they look at me. And they largely see us as people who are committed to an old dead guy that taught some nice things, but ultimately it's meaningless. And you and I can be tempted 
to say, no way, no way. We are going to build the church so they will not be able to take us for granted. And I pray that your desire to build some lasting monument would be revealed to you as the worst form of idolatry. You see, Jesus isn't in the grave. And he doesn't need anyone to carry a torch for him. Because our king reigns. He is not dead. And he doesn't need anyone to carry a torch for him because he himself carries his own torch. And he doesn't need you or me to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. He has purposed in his own counsel of his own will to succeed in all that he desires. He will take his gospel to the ends of the earth. He will carry his own torch. But what you need to understand here in these opening verses is that Christ invites you. Not that he needs you. But he invites you to place your hand alongside his and to walk with him carrying the gospel forward. My prayer for you is that you would join with Christ in what he is continuing to do even today. Church, would you please bow with me in prayer? Father, we thank you for this book. We thank you for the story it tells. We thank you, Father, for the truth that you are working out salvation until the ends of the earth, that you are working to make your own name famous. You don't need us, Lord. You're not indebted to us. You're not beholden to us. And we praise you all the more for that glorious promise. That it's not that you need us, but that you welcome us as sons and daughters. And so, God, we pray and we ask that as this church, First Baptist, strives to lift high your precious and holy name, that we would be very careful to say at all times, O oh Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. That it is not this church, institution, this body, this building. We're not seeking to build monuments or mausoleums. We're trying to lift high the torch that you are lifting high. And we pray, God, that you would show us how to do that to the glory of your name as we work our way through this book. Thank you, God, for speaking. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.